and welcome to Board Game Famous, the board gaming podcast with more episodes than Leonardo da Vinci has paintings. And hopefully we're more famous than Leonardo at this point because, well, we've got more podcast episodes than he has paintings. I'm your host, David, and I'm joined, as always, with my co-host, Michael. Howdy, howdy. And I'm going to be honest with you. I was thinking about Leonardo DiCaprio for like half of that intro. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, I, I didn't realize he was a painter. <laughs> Uh, at least you weren't thinking of the Ninja Turtle. <laughs> <laughs> wow, he's very talented. <laughs> <laughs> With his little turtle hand. Well, let's take this brief intermission and move on to our section. And we start, as always, with, hey, Michael, what you been playing? So I went to hang out with my board gaming group for the first time in a little bit of time because I've been busy doing sports stuff. I'm sorry. I got a couple hobbies. Uh, sports season just started at time of recording, so I was getting excited and preparing for sports stuff. Uh, for those of you who actually care, the Major League Soccer in the United States. Considering half of our listeners is your group of friends, would you, I would assume they all care? <laughs> actually, most of them are... They care in a friendly way. Okay, okay. <laughs> Some of them have expressed interest of going sometime. But no, I, I got I got to go back to my friendly local game store and play some board games, you know. I just show up sometimes, not knowing what I get to play. Sometimes I bring my own games. I didn't bring my board games this past time. I arrived, uh, there was a good crowd available, and one of my friends said that he was going to set up Brass Birmingham. 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 Uh, <laughs> doing my best uh, for the three UK listeners that we have sometimes. <laughs> Brass Birmingham, designed by a name. Martin Wallace, I want to say. He's one of the designers listed on BGG. Oh, he's the original so, yeah. designer of Brass, so I'm assuming yeah, Birmingham. Yeah. So, uh, includes BGG includes uh, Martin Wallace, the original designer of Brass, not Brass Birmingham. Uh, it also includes Gravin Brown and Matt Tolman. This is a sequel slash successor to Brass, which was re later reprinted as Brass Lancashire. Lancashire. I hope I'm saying that right. <laughs> so. you, even, you even struggle with words that are traditionally English. <laughs> <laughs> it's, they have all these towns and they only say half the words. <laughs> they have all these towns and they have to say half the letters. <laughs> like Lester. has so many letters, it's just Lester. <laughs> But that's besides the point. And like a lot of board games, it takes place during the Industrial Revolution. Specifically, the early Industrial Revolution. And in this game, you play in two different eras. Uh, the Canal Era and the Rail Era. As you go from one transportation technology to another transport te transportation technology. And you set up these factories, produce goods, and you try to link your factories to these markets to be able to sell them and make money. And the interesting thing about, about this game is you pick up steam, you're working on the same map, you're building factories in these different towns. You start out with zero income, so you have to take out loans to be able to build factories, to be able to ship goods, uh, go up in income, and blah 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 blah. And I like it because it has these nice two very distinct phases, these oh, eras as they're called in the board game, the canal era, and then uh, the rail era, where the canal era happens, and you have very basic factories and resources that you can get, you know, not as productive and that. And as you start building more and more, they're more productive. They get you more points. They increase your income more and more and more. And that's a, has a nice acceleration as you move to 
rail, and then whenever you get to the rail area, as you're connecting these cities, you can connect cities faster than you could in uh, the canal era, because, you know, you can build rail faster than you can dig canals, so... It sounds like it's a really good capitalism simulation. Yeah, uh, like, like all good, like all good board games that take place during the Industrial Revolution, the main color palette of it is black and gray. Uh And it, uh, Uh, I assume it just glosses over the human misery. Oh, what what humans? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to not think about it whenever it just takes the worker aspect out of it. And you're just placing factories. It doesn't even consider that there's people running those factories or there's people in those towns. Like a true capitalist. <laughs> like a true, like a true capitalist. But one of the, one of the interesting mechanics is I think you take I think you take something like there are eight rounds per era. I think I think that's correct if I remember. And each round you get to take a couple actions, and the turn order between rounds is determined by who spent the least amount of money. So if you spent the least amount of money in the previous round, you get to go first, and so on and so forth. So it has that very um, interesting dynamic of you save your money for particular rounds to have a big round where you just spend a lot, and you go first, and you can strategically build a specific route to block someone off and give yourself the access to a specific city or, or market before someone else. And you might hold back another round. You might not spend as much. That way, you get to uh, go at a more strategic time in a later turn, later round. Is so. this is this pacing that you get to control as the player? Yeah, yeah. It's the money that you spend. So uh, different actions cost different things. Mm-hmm. So you can choose to take actions that are cheaper. And so okay, there is a little bit of control. Just saying, like, oh, I'm going to do these couple actions. Keep my my money down low. And then when I get to go first, strike. Okay. Has some, has some nice pacing. I think this game is pretty well regarded. I had played before several times. I'll tell you how well regarded it is. It is in the top 100. Woo! <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess I guess it is well regarded. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. Even though I don't think I have figured out the puzzle of maximizing and optimizing those actions quite yet. Mm-hmm. I've played this a handful of times over the years, and I was glad to get it back to the table because I believe this is the first time I've played it uh, since COVID. So that's two plus years since I've played it, and it was really exciting to see it again. Definitely has really good game feel. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag game feel. I think Brass has very good pacing. I think the theme is it adds it adds to the game. Definitely. It, it takes all those weird Euro mechanics and makes it make sense in a way that's easy to remember. Yes, it's a little depressing. You know, capitalism is fun. Capitalism <laughs> is fun. Uh, and uh, yeah, definitely want to play it again. I was excited to play it for the first time in a couple of years since my friend owns it. You know, there's always the opportunity to get it to the table. And the, you know, the, reprints, the reprints are gorgeous. Uh, I just wish they oh. hadn't removed Hugh Jackman from The Greatest Showman off the original cover. <laughs> Which is funny, because you can take the super inspirational quotes from The Greatest Showman and juxtapose, uh, juxtapose it with the depressing atmosphere, which is what the reprint has. <laughs> but David, what have you been playing? So, my father-in-law got the 
most recent expansion for Wingspan. So it's been out for a little while. I really like Wingspan. I have the European Birds expansion, uh, and I felt like that was enough for me. So my father-in-law bought the Oceana expansion, uh, which adds a new game board and a lot more bird cards. And it really fixes the two issues that a lot of people have with Wingspan. One, not enough birds fixes that problem. And uh, problem number two is the actions are a little unbalanced. So with the baseboard, eggs are so easy to get, and every egg is worth a point at the end of the game. And it kind of undervalues food and drawing cards. Well, with the new expansion, you get new boards, a new set of dice, a new type of food, and the board is tweaked a little bit. So each of the gain food actions, lay egg actions, and draw cards actions is a little bit different. So gain food and draw cards is a little bit more powerful, and lay eggs is a little less powerful. So it really balances out those actions. Um, the draw, the gain food action now has spots where you can choose to re-roll the dice by paying a resource. And that gives you uh, a little more control over the food you're looking for. Uh, the eggs are a little bit more expensive to lay as many eggs as you want. You have to pay more resources to get eggs out on the board. And then drawing cards, you have the option to pay resources to draw extra cards earlier. So you can build up your engine a little bit better. And I think it overall smooths out the game a little bit. Uh, it does add a wild resource called Nectar. You can use it as if it was any food type, but you can't save it from round to round. The, the only part that I didn't really care for was if you spend Nectar on an action like gain food, but spend a food to reroll the dice. You could spend a Nectar to reroll the dice. You spend it onto that action slot. And there's a little bit of an area control thing there. Whoever spends the most Nectar doing something to boost an action gets a few points at the end of the game. And it might have been there for balance reasons. But since you've already got that big old deck of bird cards, it's a little lucky anyway. I don't think that was necessary. I think just the uh, the smoothing out of the actions on that board is is enough for this expansion. You, you know, you know I have at least one very important question. What is it? Can you still make the birds happy? I mean, you still can make the birds happy. You still can you can still lay eggs enough to fill up every bird. It just might take you an extra lay egg action that you, then you had had to do before. For long-time listeners, you might know what that's a reference to. For our newer listeners, hey, hello, how are you guys doing? <laughs> Glad you could join us. That is a reference to episode number episode number six, Make the Birds Happy. <laughs> Go back and listen to it, why don't you? Yeah, so overall, I thought the expansion was really nice. Um, replaces the boards, replaces the dice because you have that new that new food type. All in all, a really pleasant expansion. I think it's more fair with the actions, but the area majority of... The nectar is a little bit, uh, a little bit off. We couldn't stop saying that's totally nectar from uh, <laughs> New Girl. <laughs> oh man, that's so nectar. <laughs> the wingspan expansion. Any other games that you want to talk about? I can talk about Furnace because Furnace is. It ties would... in with the depress depressing uh, uh, capitalism theme. Exactly, I was gonna say it's kind of like the little sibling to uh, Brass Birmingham. It's also got a sad beige man in a top hat on the cover. It's also about capitalism in the Industrial Revolution. Abstracted a little more. Uh, it's an interesting bidding game where you have four chips numbered one through four. 
and you're all bidding on a row of cards. If you place your four on a card, you've bid the highest, and you're guaranteed to win that. But somebody could still bid lower than you, and every card has compensation at the top of it, and you get compensation, you get compensated if you lose a card. And it's a really interesting game of winning the cards you need to to run your engine, but also losing the cards you don't want to get compensated with free resources at the ex- at the right time to run your engine a little bit better than everybody else. Uh, this is more abstracted than Brass Birmingham. You're not even worried about shipping of those goods, but it is still coal, steel. This one's got oil in it as well. I don't think that's in brass. Yeah, I since, you know, we don't live anywhere near each other. 13-hour drive, woo! Woo! That's nothing to us Midwesterners. <laughs> yeah, you should try doing it a handful of times. <laughs> oh, I have! <laughs> but uh, I was thinking about picking it up a couple times that we played. Definitely left an impression. I still think about it from time to time in terms of exactly what you're talking about is that, that you have to lose cards at strategic times but still benefit, uh, still try to gain as many resources from that card as possible. And it is an engine-building game in the purest sense of the words. It's just Mm -hmm. your first round, you get three or four cards, you get a couple of resources, you convert those resources into other goods, and get points. The next round, you have even more cards, so you're running a slightly bigger engine. And by round three, you, you have to really think about what order you want to run your factories in to get goods at the right time so you can convert them down the line to make the most points. So, have you played the variant where you have to decide the order that they activate in as you receive them? No, that that is a that is a variant, an official variant that comes in the rulebook. You can, when you gain a factory, you can put it either on the left or the right, but you must run it from left to right when yeah. it gets to your turn. I have not played that way yet, mostly because I think you'll score fewer points, and each time I get a point, it's a little hit of dopamine, a little hit of di- serotonin, and I want as much as I can get. <laughs> I think I think uh, I would like to try that sometime. Yeah, points are fun, but stre- creating stressful, tense situations, creating a puzzle for yourself to figure out is also fun. That's true. So I wouldn't stop from playing that one time if you wanted to. I'm always down for exploring the design space of a game, and this is this is just a game telling you, hey, once you've played the game a lot, try it this way. And I do like it when games give me options like that. Yeah, I think it's cool that it's also an official option, too. And now it's time for Game of the Fortnite, the part of the podcast where we talk about one game and hold it above all others, at least for the next two weeks. And this Fortnite, the game we decided for, is... Dune Imperium, designed by Paul Dennen. So Dune Imperium is a interesting mix of mechanisms. It's a mix of worker placement and deck building, which is something I've explored trying to figure out how they work together. But Dune Imperium does it any better than my weird little notes in my game design journal. In Dune Imperium, you have you draw you have a starting deck of cards like you do in a traditional deck builder, and those cards give you benefits when you play them, but when you play them, you also send a worker out to a space to take an action. You only have a couple of workers to place, and once it gets to you and you have no more workers to put out on the board, you take what's called a reveal phase, and you reveal all the cards from your hand that you didn't play, and those give you a different benefit to buy new cards or to help you win in combat over the over Arrakis, the desert planet. 
And this game, you're collecting the you're collecting the resources in Dune, which is melange or spice or salari, the the currency of the world, or that ever precious water, which is very hard to get. You're trying to outthink your opponents, going to the spaces that you need, collecting influence in the different factions that are uh, on Dune, and scoring victory points through alliances and through combat, fighting over territory on Dune. This seems to be one of a handful of games that has come out in the wake of the new Dune movie coming out, which I I enjoyed the, the movie. Uh, there's, you know, Dune Betrayal, Dune A Game of Conquest and Diplomacy, Dune Imperium, the Dune reprint came out not too long ago. I think there's even uh, another Dune game. I, it's so strange that the original Dune game couldn't come out because they couldn't get the license for so long. Since the 70s, something like that. And now with this new movie, there's just a deluge of Dune games. Yeah, I think uh, this Dune game stands out among all of these Dune games for pretty pretty good reasons. Each player plays as a faction that's from the series. These characters include a unique power that is, that is pretty nice. The worker placement aspect always feels good. I have said in a previous episode that a good worker placement in my eyes forces you to make strategic Uh, decisions at strategic times to optimize the actions that you want to do and you know sometimes you're hoping that a player doesn't take a specific location before you do even though you're taking a different location because you know it's it's more optimal you optimal for you at that moment and, and you have to work around it from time to time i think so you know this is a deck builder and it has a trade row. I, you have said that you don't like trade rows in general. Most I'm, of the time. I'm, I'm lessening up on that opinion. But yes, I have been on record saying that I don't like trade rows yeah. in, in deck builders. I, I think the trade row in this game works pretty well. Since it is a mishmash of worker placement versus deck building, each aspect carries a certain weight of importance for optimizing in the game. So whereas you may not have an optimal trade row at a specific time, that's okay, because you can still get a good card that is useful at that particular moment. You might not have the best card that you want, but you can still get a good card. There's there's so I, many things to look at on that trade row. It's you have to see where what locations the card will let you send a worker to, the ability that the card has when you play it, or even the ability the card gives you when you hold it in your hand for a reveal turn. And I think that plethora of options is it works really well for the trade row. I've had I think that's been my issue with trade rows in the past. It's pretty stifling. You get six options. Well, there's so many aspects to each card, it's not six options. It's more like you're 12 or, th- or thir- feel like 15. Yeah. Another okay. reason I think I give this one a pass for having that trade row is while it is a combination of deck building and worker placement, I think it's more worker placement than deck building. Uh, you don't get you don't get the fine-tuned deck that you would in a pure deck builder. Uh, you wouldn't get that perfect engine tuned. You don't, you don't get to see that here. So more, it's, you, you want to buy cards to open up your options for the worker placement aspect of the game. And I think that's why I'm pretty bad at the game. 
because I treat it like more like a deck building game and not a worker placement game. And it's that it's the marriage of those two mechanisms that I find so interesting that I keep coming back to it. I've played it quite a few times since we uh, we bought it at the convention last year. We being you and your wife. We being me and my wife, because Michael's <laughs> sad and alone all by himself and doesn't own the game. <laughs> Didn't buy a game that my friends already own, but yes. <laughs> oh, you're alone. Oh, you're alone for life. Have you ever played this game with more than two people? Yes. The first time I played it I was at the convention. I played it with three people. Playing with two people, it is a it is still a great game. There's a deck of cards that simulates a third player, which is fine. I'm not usually huge on the dummy player aspect. Typically, all it is is flip a card over at the top of the deck and put that dummy player's pawn there. It blocks that space off of four us we the the real players can't go there and it and it acts after the first player right it acts it acts after the first player of that round and it and it functions the game is still great with that dummy player it's just i get so into the game and ellen gets so into the game we just want to take turn after turn after turn after turn and we forget to flip over that card we forget to do that little admin for that that's think, the only I problem think, with it i think my biggest problem with the dummy player is not that it puts a pawn in a random spot, because I think that adds an interesting layer to the worker placement aspect. But I think the biggest problem is the randomness that it can add to combat by flipping over a card and drawing That's certain true. There, Yeah, I don't have a problem with it taking any space at random. I think all of the spaces on the board are are very well balanced, to the point where... There are several spaces I'm like, don't flip over, dummy player, don't flip over that card, that's where I need to go, because it would be realistic that a real player would go to any of the spaces that I need to go at any given time. The way way combat works, and combat is very important in this game, and it happens every single round. You're building up troops, trying to send them to the desert planet's surface, which is a big chunk of the board, and in the middle of that planet's surface, there's just a battle zone. And every round you flip over a card that tells you this is what you're fighting for. This is what this is what you're going to battle for at the end of the round. And the and dummy it's player... Good, it's good stuff. It's good stuff that you're fighting for, especially the longer you get into the game. It is good stuff. It's a ton of resources that are like basically free resources. All you have to do is fight for them. Uh, and then oh, like that's how you get a that's how you can get a good chunk of your points to win the game. The fact that the dummy player adds an unnecessary randomness to that, probably my least favorite aspect of playing a two-player. I have never had a problem with the dummy player in combat. They are, the AI is very aggressive, and one of the cards, you can reveal cards that have swords that add to your combat power. The AI does seem to have more swords than I would think a person should have in their reveal turn. Uh, That would be my biggest complaint. They're pretty aggro, but honestly, I don't have a problem with them because it seems like they have a harder time getting actual cubes onto the board. Little troops. Yeah. For people who don't want to just speak basic wood components. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to specify that because uh, we recently got the expansion and I got to play with the expansion for the first time yesterday. And I gotta say, I'm a big proponent of the uh, of the expansion. It fixed everything that was wrong with the base game. I don't know what was wrong with the base game, but I never won. And I won for the first time last night with the expansion, so it fixed everything. 
Bold uh, statement. Bold statement. <laughs> it keep, the the new expansion just adds a bunch of cards to every single uh, every single deck that's available. You got your trade row has fifty percent more cards. Your intrigue deck, which gives you special abilities that you can trigger when you need them to. Uh, you got about fifty percent more of those. You got more combat cards to. You got more conflict cards that you're fighting over to make that a little more interesting. And you're not. Uh, you can't count on the same cards showing up now. Uh, the biggest change is it replaced four actions on the board. So there's a little a bit of an overlay. So it covers up four actions and it gives you four new actions. Uh, one of those actions being to give you the dreadnought, which is not a wooden cube but a wooden ship, and it has a little extra fighty power, but more importantly, after combat, your Dreadnought does not go away. Uh, it doesn't get sent back to your supply. It goes straight back to your barracks, which it makes fights more exciting because you're fighting more often because you could just, oh, hey, I'll just push my Dreadnought out there. There's, I don't need to save it. And it also has this interesting side effect where you treat your cubes as way more expendable because now you have to overcome these dreadnoughts. You're pushing those cubes way out into the battle. Like, go on, overrun this guy. Go on, kid. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think that's why I won. Ellen was a little too timid with her with her troops, but ended up with almost ten soldiers in her barracks at the end of the game. Nice. How many times have you had a chance to play this game? I have played it three times. Okay. All two player. All two player, okay. All two player. I've never played it with more than me and another person. So you were having a little bit of complaints about the dummy player. Uh, would you play would you keep playing it two player though? Yeah, I think it's still a fun game. Yeah. I mean it's <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's a fun game. <laughs> I think it's interesting that this game came out pretty much the same time as Lost Ruins of Arnak, which is another deck building worker placement game that functions very similarly uh you buy cards from a trade row those cards let you go to certain spots on the board and i've played both of them and for my money i own dune imperium and that's it question is would you give dune imperium the board game famous gold star award i would it's we've been discussing uh we've been discussing how we give this award to games that define their genre and the cross between deck building and worker placement is still being fleshed out it's still new it's not it's not that common in board games but i think dune imperium is a pioneering board game and it's that type of game that even though i lost over and over and over i keep going back to it because it's just that fun yeah i i also give it the gold star mainly because I've only played it three times, but every single time this game, it just takes over my mind thinking about, oh, what could I have done better? What kind of strategy would have worked? Oh, you know, just mulling it over, just thinking about the game. And the fact that it has that effect on me where I'm just thinking about, you know, even if I went, I'm just, th just you know, strategizing. Oh, what, what if I did this and took that resource and blah, 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 I took that action. Um, the way it just, you know, just occupies my mind. I, it's just... It's it's nice. It's got a nice mental stimulation that, like you said, even when you lose, you have fun. Mm -hmm. I do want to mention a little bit about the art of the game because it takes a direction that I that I can appreciate. This is it 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 is kind of 
riding the coattails of the success of the movie. It was released a, right before the movie came out, I believe. And yes, it has. Got, yes, because the movie got pushed back. <laughs> Only because the movie was delayed. And it has art that is inspired by the film. It's not stills from the movie, but it is recognizably those characters from the movie. So you can play as Timothy Chalamet. You can pay, play as Poe Dameron. Uh, sorry, I don't actually know Poe Dameron's name. Poe Dameron. Is that the dude bro? No, that's not Poe Dameron. Are you talking about Duncan Idaho? Yes. My man. <laughs> no, Poe Dameron is uh, Duke Leto. He's Timothy Chalamet's oh, dad. Oh, 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 Poe Dameron space pilot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's one hell of a pilot. God, that's Oscar Isaac, obviously. <laughs> well, sorry to, sorry to all you Oscar Isaac fans out there. He's a great actor. I mean, he's fine. I don't hate him. I just don't know his name. Continuing on. Before this becomes a movie podcast. (laughs) I was just saying that I appreciate a game that is doing an homage to the film, to its, I want to say source material, but I don't want people who love the books to at me. Uh... I mean, it's using the art based on the movies. So. Yeah, and it's based off the movie, but it's doing it in a really well done way because it's all illustrations based off of the film. Visually, I think it will be, I don't want to say timeless, but it will stand the test of time better than other Dune games that have come out at this time. Okay. Yeah, I think I think the graphic design of the cards is a little clunky with how like the sections are are on the card absolutely the formatting of the cards definitely looks a little old school but the artwork i, I do appreciate how you say the word old school because i think it does look a little bit like 80s future font if you know what i'm talking about mm-hmm. i saw there's a sign in our neighborhood uh that says saint peter's on it in that uh uh, 80s future font and something has never looked so far in the future and so far in the past at the exact same time the, the term for that is retrofuturism. Ooh. Something from the past made to look from the future. Okay. Now I've learned something today. <laughs> and our next section is Brother Talk. And this fortnight, we are talking about Kickstarters. Just in general. Just how we feel about them. You know, Kickstarter has done good things. Kickstarter has done bad things for the industry. It is usually pretty easy to start uh, to figure out what kind of game is a Kickstarter game by its table presence. That's we'll true. Get more to that. So, David, starting out, what is your favorite game that has been Kickstarted? Oh, that has to be Everdell. Everdell is my favorite game, and that's from Kickstarter. And I believe your favorite game, Scythe, is also from Kickstarter. Like I said, Kickstarter has done great <laughs> things for board gaming industry. So what Kickstarter is, is it's it's a crowdfunding platform for creators to go out and say, look at this cool little game I've made. Well, it's not specifically for games, but uh, this is a board game podcast. And after all, that's what we're going to talk about. Look at this cool little game I've made. Give me money and I will send it to you. Let me me be more specific. Hey, look at this board game that I have a concept for that might not have even have been made yet or playtested. Oh, don't. Don't you dare try and go to Kickstarter with a game you've not playtested. <laughs> that has never happened before. <laughs> so that's that was the vision of Kickstarter for board games. And 
it did pretty well. The first board game to come off of Kickstarter to prove that it was a viable method for producing board games was a game called Alien Frontiers. That was the first board game to raise a lot of money on Kickstarter. And it raised $50,000, which today for board game standards on Kickstarter... That's a barely funded project at this point in time. But it was, it, Alien Frontiers was the first successful game on Kickstarter. Uh, it, and it proved, and it opened the floodgates to other companies to join Kickstarter for, for producing their games. And as time went by, several companies had a lot of success on Kickstarter. Uh, one of them being Stonemaier Games. They ran several massive campaigns for their games to the point where they became so successful as a company they stepped away from Kickstarter. They now have they now have the funds and the support that they need for producing their own games without having without without having to crowdfund anything. And that's another example of something good that Kickstarter has done. Another historically significant game on Kickstarter is Zombicide. I think that was one of the first board games to ever raise over a million dollars on the on the site. And it really put Cool Mini or Not on the map as a just as a company, as a force to be reckoned with. And this is where we get into the dark side of Kickstarter, <laughs> where uh, games become about plastic showy minis. And I'm not biased as a self-promoting Euro lover. <laughs> give, me so, those, give me those wooden cubes any day. <laughs> it, se- it seems like a lot of Kickstarters are focused on the material the production and not necessarily a quality game uh can quality games have quality components and be fun yes uh eclipse second edition was a kickstarter game it improves eclipse first edition so much it has a lot of nice plastic pieces it's pretty cool um the third of eric m lang's mythology trilogy has a lot of crazy crazy plastic pieces uh, and and it, uh, some expansions that are already out. <laughs> Is it pretty? Yeah, I said in previous podcasts that I like it. Are there mediocre games that try to sell you on their cool components that don't quite turn out? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, it, it, it's just something where it's you got to do buyer beware. You got to do your research. Kickstarter, I feel like, is a if you're just browsing it on your own and you haven't you haven't been brought in from a, some other site, it's. You're trying to judge a book by its cover, so you have to show. If if you're a product on Kickstarter, you've got to be big and flashy, and the big minis help, and that's how a lot of companies draw in the money. Now, I said Stonemeyer did the stepped away from Kickstarter. I think Simon or Kumini or not should have stepped away a few years ago, but instead, their their whole business model is about raising funds on Kickstarter. It's big and showy. Another another part of the dark side of Kickstarter is. It feeds off of exclusivity and the fear of missing out. A lot of the campaigns on Kickstarter will give you exclusives if you back their Kickstarter to try so they try and raise their funds. You get, oh, this is the only time this will ever be sold and you can only get it here on this Kickstarter. So you have to do it now. And as somebody who's a huge proponent of try before you buy, I don't like Kickstarters that say like, oh, you won't be able to get this kick- you won't be able to get this content, you won't be able to play with it, 
well, I don't know if the base is any good. Why? Why should I? Why should I buy it now? Yeah, I, I definitely am a uh, big proponent of try it before you buy. A lot of the times, you know, with these Kickstarter games, you're playing a product that nobody has reviewed. You probably won't get for two years, and that's another big downside: is <laughs> you're backing these things, and you might not get it for two to three years, if at all. There are horror stories of companies that run Kickstarters. And never ship a product. That is true. I know uh, a couple of my friends who have been burned by Kickstarters, and now they will only um, back publishers or designers that uh, that they're familiar with, that, that that they trust, that has already built a relationship with them. Of course, you know, there's always these hype machines out there trying to build up the next biggest campaign ever for board games. I I haven't really been burned that much by Kickstarter. Uh, I've had one game that i really didn't like that i ended up selling and i've backed a couple of couple of campaigns that were pretty expensive two of those the the those the two that were most expensive were probably anachrony and then seventh continent while i think the building up the hype to try and get as much attention as possible is obnoxious it it does help on the secondary market if uh, everybody who's afraid of they of their missing out, I sold my copy of Seventh Continent almost for what I paid for it. But overall, Kickstarter is good for the hobby. I think overall, it does give creators it it's, it does still give those little creators a chance to put their games out there to get them in front of potential gamers' uh, attention board, and give them a chance to gaming, to buy it. Board gaming is still a niche hobby doesn't have massive amounts of capital being poured into it like other hobbies and so i i agree with you it gives uh new designers or old designers as as we have discussed an opportunity to have access to capital that they would not otherwise and um really bring good games to market somebody once asked the question if you died right now how many board games would your loved ones receive from Kickstarter? And I try and live my life to make that not so much of a hassle. So you said you don't back any games on Kickstarter. But the f- when I had read that question, I think I was at like five. <laughs> I was like, whoo, buddy, I need to cool it. Yeah, for the listeners, I don't back any games on Kickstarter. But my friends do. Thanks, <laughs> thank you, friends. Shout out to my friends who are listening right now. <laughs> You can DM me later. <laughs> Whereas you you mentioned your friends get have been burned a little bit by Kickstarter. Uh, while I haven't been burned, I think the way they do it is probably the best way to to do Kickstarter. I have given a pass to a couple of games from companies that are just starting out, but I try that game later on the road, and then I'm interested for their next Kickstarter. So I've gotten. I've just received a couple of shipments recently. I got the Canvas expansion. That works mm-hmm. that works really well. I was really excited to get that because when uh, when I first played Canvas, one of the first things I said was, like, this is going to need an expansion really quickly. And I, I think the expansion fixes a lot of the problems that I have with Canvas. It's the biggest problem that you're a bad artist. <laughs> uh, no, the biggest problem is you pick up the you pick up your painting cards from a trade row and to get one further down the row you have to pay you have to pay your paint chips to skip certain cards and if you're out of paint chips you just have to pick up the first card this introdu- the the expansion for canvas introduces a second row below it so you all you have more options which is which is a good thing in a board game to have more options especially in a simple game like canvas and then the other game we just got shipped to us 
was uh, Cellulose by Genius Games. We love Cytosis. This was the follow-up game to that. So uh, we played it a couple nights ago. I wanna I wanna play it a few more times before uh, I talk about it. I talk about my feelings on this one. But suffice it to say, Ellen almost lapped me on a fifty-point score track. It'd be like that sometimes. It'd be <laughs> like that sometimes. But I mean, it's always nice when a new Kickstarter game shows up. Just make sure you do your research and you're getting one from a a game designer or a publisher that you trust. And don't forget to change your address if you move. Oh my gosh, it's been a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) I'm moving soon, so I had one game show up here, and the Canvas expansion show up at Mom and Dad's house. (laughs) And then I think the the last Kickstarter I'm currently waiting on are the Everdell expansions, the final Everdell expansions. And I think those are going to be shipped to my new house. (laughs) Very nice. Without musical accompaniment, we're on to our next section, which is mail time. Are you literally just not going to put the music transition in? No, mail time from Blue's Clues. Oh, okay, okay. All right, continue. That was your joke first. Uh, yeah, uh, and then I forget about it because that's how I've lived my life, like a cool person. <laughs> <laughs> I just, just forget stuff like a cool person. <laughs> and this week's question comes from my very own co-host, Michael. What's your favorite bad board game? A game that you know isn't that good, but you still love to play it. And I'm wondering if we're going to have the same answer. All right, well, I'll let you go first. I asked the question. You asked the question back to me, but it was my question. <laughs> <laughs> I was, The first game that I thought of was probably Nevermore. It's not a great game, but it's, it's fun. It's stupid and it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's quick, which is gonna be different than the game that i'm going to say got something else okay i am going to say that this game this bad game comes with a caveat that i enjoy playing this game with a specific group of people and that is my college friends because that's who i used to play it with back in college and that is betrayal at the house on the hill oh good answer because that by very by a lot of definitions of game design, it's not a good game. <laughs> it is not very balanced. Whenever you go to the trader phase, it's usually a lopsided victory one way or the other. There's usually, It's not usually balanced um, one way or the other. But whenever I play with this group of friends, we always have so much fun with the randomness, with the lopsidedness, with the traders and the plotting. And I just... I let it go. I don't focus on its misgivings. It can take like an hour to play too. So it's not a short game like Nevermore where you can play 20 games in an hour. A little bit hyperbole. (laughs) (laughs) But no, yeah. I don't think Betrayal is a great game. I don't think it's a good game. Do I enjoy playing it with my friends from college like we used to? Yeah. Yeah, sure do. When was the last time you played it? Uh, October of last year. It just made me think of another game. Oh, man, I don't know if I want to say it's a bad game. Because what's the purpose of a game? To have fun. And if you have fun, it's a good game, right? I not guess. Necessarily, not necessarily. I, I, well, I'm not saying I'm not talking about Betrayal. I was thinking of another game that I love. And I think it is a very fun game. But the reason I might say it's a bad game is it's not entirely fair. And that is above and below above and below is a and kind of an action selection game you've got workers that are fit to certain tasks and you 
activate them to take a certain action. And one of those actions that you can take is exploring, where you get a little story. And it's a story element. It's a, it's a story-based game. So uh, you read a little section out of a big storybook and present choices to the person taking the explore action. And it's a ton of fun getting those little snippets into the below when you're exploring the caverns. But some of the rewards in that game are so unbalanced. I'll go down there with all my adventurers and get a fish. And then Ellen goes down with two people and she gets seven coins. What is this nonsense? <laughs> yeah. I think I think that makes it not a... It's definitely not, in terms of game design, a great game. But if you go into the... If you go into Above and Below knowing that you're just doing this for fun... It's an excellent game. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now we come to the end of another podcast. Thank you for listening. If you have anything you want to say to us, anything at all, please email us at boardgamefamous at gmail.com or join our Discord with the link below or add us on Instagram with the link below. I'm looking at you, Scott. <laughs> Do you have a friend who listens whose name is Scott, or are you just trying to freak out somebody? <laughs> you can cut that out. I actually have a friend whose name is Scott. <laughs> no, I want to leave it in there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's the one who gave me the suggestion to put the uh, the names of the games we talk about in the description. So oh, okay. That was a good suggestion, Scott. If you had emailed us that, that would have been a perfectly fine email. You didn't have to tell me. <laughs> over beer at the brewery after i was like five beers deep <laughs> i remembered it it's a miracle <laughs> i usually forget things like a cool person <laughs> well until next time bye-bye <laughs> bye-bye <laughs>